One thing that really interests me is the process of performance, that theater is an art that happens collectively and in time. I think there's something really important and special about that kind of real-time shared experience of an audience from really mixed class and cultural backgrounds sharing fantasy. Poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are. If my sweet Harry had but half their The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. You're listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and today we're delving into Shakespeare's world to look at what theater and the theater-going experience was like during this time. My name's Musa Gurness. I am an assistant professor in the English department here at WashU, and I work on English commercial theater in the late 16th, early 17th century. Musa is currently writing a book on early modern theater in London, and she was kind enough to meet with me to discuss this era in theater history. So what is early modern theater? What are its dates and hallmarks? The start date is harder to set than the end date. I mean, the theaters closed in 1642, not as is commonly thought because Puritans hated theater. You know, and actually that's one of the interventions I make in my book. I show positive forms of Puritan engagement with theater culture. But mostly they closed in 1642 for crowd control safety reasons during war. But that's kind of a, that's an end date. For those out there like me who are a little rusty on their British history, 1642 is the year the English Civil War began, and Parliament fought King Charles I for control of the government. But that's getting pretty off-topic. Let's return to the theater. There was commercial playing in inns like the Red Lion as early as 1567, but the first purpose-built commercial theater, right? Like, we're going to invest and put up timber just to do this new kind of representation. That's 1576 with Burbage's theater. It's called just the theater. Before, medieval theater was held in open marketplaces or churches, and morality plays were the go-to, where a protagonist meets personifications of various vices or virtues to teach viewers a moral or lesson which was often religious. However, during the early modern period, the first actual theaters were built in London, including the famous Globe Theatre. And theatre itself became a competitive business, much like the film studios we have today. Plays and characters also became more complicated and more morally gray to reflect real life, politics, and popular culture at the time. The theater really had an intensely symbiotic relationship with the kind of surrounding culture, and a mutually productive one. It's not just that what they were doing is reflected in these plays. Plays that really put politics on stage for a mixed class, mixed gender, popular audience. So you didn't have to be literate and able to read Machiavelli or able to read Holinshed's History of England to be able to think about questions of sovereign power, the state and the people, and so on, in really sophisticated ways. So, yeah, that kind of specific political and cultural engagement, and also just, I mean, it's a business. I mean, those people were really 
paying attention to the entertainment market. Medieval theater also has forms of commercial engagement, like the carpenters are doing the play of the crucifixion and the tapestry makers are doing pilot, who's all decadent and sleeping, but it's, it's a form of advertisement. So it's not as if earlier drama is untouched by the market. But what you see that's distinctive in the early modern period is a competitive theater business that works much more like the kind of contemporary movie studio system. You know, the way we have Fox and Miramax will both be coming out with a dark superhero movie, right? We'll see people sort of imitating popular figures. After Tamburlaine comes out and it's this crazy success, there are all these poor man's Tamburlaine plays where someone will do a kind of spin-off with a character or a serialization or something like that, not just within companies, but also kind of across companies. They're really attuned to their market. Shakespeare's history plays fit into this idea that politics and real class issues were finally being brought to the stage during this time in London. And despite what some would say, Gurness maintains Shakespeare's histories are not at all propaganda for the Tudors. They're actually more complicated than that. I don't think Shakespeare's a Tudor apologist. I think the history plays have what we call like a hermeneutics of suspicion, an unmystified, unsentimental examination of how power works at the very highest levels. When you compare it to something like Haywood's If You Know Not Me, You Know Nobody, part two, no, part one, which is like a a hagiography of Elizabeth. It's basically rah-rah Elizabeth, here come the Protestant tutors, hooray. What Shakespeare's doing is much more critical. I mean, it's the kind of sort of real politic, political analysis that you get in continental prose works like Machiavelli's The Prince or something like that. I mean, very often in Shakespeare's plays, you'll get the most pious and sort of correct expressions of the legitimacy of royal authority coming as total manipulative propaganda out of the mouths of, you know, villains, right? Like Claudius in Hamlet, who's murdered the king. When Laertes comes in and is threatening to kill him, he's like, stand back. There's such divinity doth hedge a king that treason can but peep to what it would. He's like, don't worry, I'm an anointed king. No one could possibly kill me. You know, obviously that's total spin. And that's usually the ideology of sacred kingship most often appears in Shakespeare's plays as something that's propaganda. It's also important to consider how people thought about the theater in this era. As Gurness explains, many religious and political authorities saw the theater as a potential threat to society's virtue and civil obedience. There's always concern from the city fathers that these large gatherings of unsupervised people are sort of a security risk, or in times of plague, everyone's worried that they'll catch infection. I mean, that seems like a legit health concern, right? But no one's saying, oh, you shouldn't go to church because you'll catch the plague. The theater is often decried as a sort of like morally dodgy place full of prostitutes and pickpockets where you see all kinds of treasons and infidelity. You know, if you'll learn how to murder kings and sleep with your neighbor's wife, great, go to the theater. But also there are people really defending theaters sort of socially ameliorative value. You know, Thomas Haywood, who's a playwright, writes this great defense of theater called The Apology for Actors. And 
And he's like, you know, look, I mean, this is the sort of school of English bravery. This is where we kind of see these foundational stories of our nation. I mean, it teaches political obedience because villains die in the end. You know, he definitely asserts a certain moral clarity for theatrical representation that I think doesn't actually exist. (laughs) He does defend theater as something that has a kind of positive social value. So what were these early theaters like? Musa Gurness says that as the business grew and evolved, so did the buildings. In the beginning, they built these amphitheater theaters like the Globe. You pay a penny to get in and stand and be a groundling. You pay two pennies to sit down and three to sit down with a cushion. You know, it's definitely like within the price range of not the very poorest people, of course, but apprentices and so on could definitely see those plays, go see Shakespeare, go see Marlowe, go see all of that. But then you get after 1609 or so, after that first decade, there's some kind of splintering of the audience. There is a sort of more elite theater You get companies playing in more exclusive, more expensive, what they call the private theaters, like Blackfriars. But, you know, for example, the Kingsmen, right, Shakespeare's company, they play the same repertory at the Globe and Blackfriars. And it's not as if after these more exclusive private theaters are invented that upper-class people stopped going to the Globe. It was a major public monument. I mean, it was a source of civic pride. It was something that kind of put London on the map. There was nothing else like it in England. How these plays were acted out was also pretty different from what you'd see today. Gurness says that the average touring company was fairly small, made up of core players who would have to fill multiple parts in each play. Remember, too, that women were not allowed on the stage in London in this time either. So boys played all of the women's parts. Attending a play as an audience member was also a pretty different experience than it is today. I mean, this is totally fascinating. What we know about the conditions of playing is that they were very varied. You get descriptions of riots, right, which was always the fear of the authorities, that gathering this many people unsupervised by religious or state authorities in one place was dangerous. And there were a few apprentice rides that did start in theaters. And we know sometimes there was heckling or sort of fighting among people in the crowd or the audiences could be quite rowdy, not the sort of super civilized, bougie playgoers that are Shakespeare's primary audience today. But also, you know, it's not as if they're just sort of rowdy all the time. I mean, you also have these descriptions of intense hushes and sometimes the crowds were huge, like holidays, May Day, it'd be packed. And audiences could vote up or down on a play. They'll play it the first time, and if everyone loves it, they'll keep it. And if they don't, you know, some things got squashed. Obviously, in the Globe, the open-air theater, there's mutual visibility. They're playing during the day. The players can see the audience. The audience can see each other. For me, something that's really distinctive about theater in this period, the way that the audience is sort of built in to so many plays either as an extension of an onstage crowd or where there's such a kind of attentiveness or more subtle kinds of meta-theater that really have an eye toward audience experience. Finally, I asked Gurness how special Shakespeare was by virtue of the fact that he was both an actor and a writer. She explained, though, that writers who were also actors were not all that uncommon in early modern London. He wasn't the only writer-actor. Johnson acted too, for example. Shakespeare's an unusual case in that half of all 
plays in the period were written collaboratively. Shakespeare more often wrote on his own. Sometimes playwrights had like a particularly strong connection to a theater company, but most playwrights most of the time were kind of writing on the spec, selling a script to whoever wanted it. Shakespeare was literally his own boss, which is highly unusual for a playwright in the period. I mean, he was a sharer, like an owner of the company that he wrote and acted for. So he had a position of sort of unusual stability. Nothing in the theater is ever autonomous. It is just skin to bone, all collaborative, all the time. But, you know, he was the leading playwright of the leading company who mostly wrote on his own. I mean, he had some degree of artistic autonomy that not everyone had. So, in many ways, the early modern English theater was the birthplace for the theater that we know today. Real issues of contemporary culture were played out on the stage for the general public, crowds of all classes, races, and genders. As Gurness said in the previous episode, Why Shakespeare? The early modern theater gave London society a place to think about itself. And if you think about some of the plays from our contemporary theater, The Crucible, A Raisin in the Sun, A Streetcar Named Desire, Angels in America, isn't that what theater does for us too? Many thanks to Musa Gurness for taking the time to meet with me. And thanks to you too for tuning in. Like what you've heard today? Subscribe to Hold That Thought on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher to keep up with all of our latest episodes.